the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Deuteronomy. God had been preparing the children of Israel to enter into the Promised Land. But once they entered and dwelt in the land, they were to continue to love God above all else and to do what God had commanded them to do. The Israelites were to be a unique people, different from the surrounding nations. We join Pastor Will in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 1. But Moses, in this portion of Deuteronomy, he's still explaining how God's laws would apply once Israel settled the promised land, because many of these situations would never come up while they wandered in the desert. So it's necessary for Moses to go over them before he dies. Now, these commands are going to go all the way through to chapter 26, upon which Israel then will respond uh, to these commands by renewing their commitment to God before they go into the land. And so even though we're covering a lot of different laws, and it seems like at some parts we're all over the place, the theme is still the same, loving God supremely because he has wonderfully loved us. That's still the theme. And because God's love for us is so different than the way we love, the way we show love to one another will be different too. And that's what Moses is going to get into tonight for Israel. So as Moses teaches Israel what this different love looks like and how we show it, might we see the importance of following God's commands, even if they go against the cultural norms of our day. So chapter 22, we begin in verse 1. And the first way that we're going to swim upstream, be different, is by being a good neighbor. He says here in verse 22, you shall not see your brother's ox or sheep go astray. I imagine he probably means dog or cat or anything else too. And don't hide yourself from them. You shall in any case bring them again unto your brother. So uh, here we see just a simple thing of when you see your brother has a need, even if he's not there, make sure you help him out. If you see his ox or his sheep going astray, it means going off on its own journey. It is jailbroke. You know, it is heading off where it wants to go on one of those kid shows, you know, that turns into movies like Benji Goes to California or something like that. He says, when you see that going on, don't hide yourself from them. That's a Hebrew way. It means to shut your eyes. And it's a Hebrew way of saying uh, you're ignoring or hiding something. Don't hide that or don't ignore that. He says, you shall in any case bring them again unto your brother. So if you saw a fellow Israeli's livestock wandering off, you couldn't say, well, not my livestock, not my problem. Now, would it take away from your day and your work and your plans to get that animal and return it to your your fellow countrymen? Yeah, it would. But that's what being a good neighbor means. It means that you don't mind stopping your plans and taking away from your day, you know, or your work to help out someone who's in need. While Israel was in the desert, everyone lived in a big, close-knit, packed environment. So being a bad neighbor got you in big trouble because everybody knew it. One of his livestock went wandering off and he looked over and said, are you going to do something about that? Because your next door neighbor was literally right in front of you. But when they settled the land, that would be different. Everyone would have their own property. If you ignored that animal, who's the only one who would know? Just the Lord. Just the Lord. And being a good neighbor means exactly that. 
The Lord knows, even if no one else knows that I saw this happen. Man, if I go chase down that sheep, it's going to run. That's like the third time I've had to bring that sheep home. And you think to yourself, man, I'm, nobody else will know. I'm just going to let that sheep go. But the Lord knows. And so being a good neighbor means I know the Lord knows. And since I love him supremely, I want to do the right thing. Oftentimes, it comes down to that, doesn't it? Our obedience. Nobody else might see. Nobody else might know. But in our heart of hearts, we'd say, but I know the Lord knows, and I love him, and I don't want to do that. I want to please him. So I want to ask you tonight a simple question. Do, do you turn away when you see a neighbor in need? Do you ever say, well, not my problem. The Lord doesn't want us to do that. What would you do if the owner lived far away, or you didn't know who owned the animal? Verse 2 says, and if your brother be not nigh unto you, close to you, or if you don't know him, you don't know who the animal belongs to, well, then you shall bring it into your own house, and it shall be with you until your brother seek after it, and then you shall restore it to him again. So if you didn't know who it belonged to, or if they lived far away, God didn't expect you to go bring it all the way back to him, but then you took it in and made sure it was cared for until he came looking for it, and then you would return it back to him. So again, just going the extra mile, doing the extra step to be a blessing blessing to your fellow countrymen. Now, being a good neighbor, of course, means more than just keeping an eye out for lost animals. Verse 3, it says, and in like manner shall you do with his donkey, and so shall you do with his raiment, his clothing, which, and with all lost things of your brothers, which he has lost, and you have found, shall you do likewise, that you may not hide yourself. So in other words, finders, keepers, losers, weepers is not in the Bible, not a biblical concept. It's funny, they had a VeggieTales episode where Larry says something like that, you know, finders, keepers, of course, he's just doing it obnoxiously, you know, I mean, they're, they're overemphasizing it. And of course, everyone around is like heartbroken, like, but that's mine. Or, you know, you know, I mean, they're just heartbroken. And so it shows that contrast of how it's just such an unbiblical concept. One of the things I would encourage you with your kids, if you, especially if you have little ones, I mean, the big ones can do it too, but hopefully they're not doing that as much. When they say things like, well, I had it first, well, that's mine. Almost when they were little, immediately I would say, may I have that please? They would come bring it to me. And I'd say, now it's no one's because now it's mine. And I would explain to them, I'd say, if you love this toy or you want this toy so badly, you love it so much that you would treat your sibling like this or your friend like this, then this is an idol in your life and you can't have it. I see parents sometimes go, well, Johnny had it first. I'm not saying be unfair, but justice is not the way we approach everything in, in life. A lot of stuff is mercy, isn't it? And you have to do that as a parent, right? If I sit down to watch football and the kids come by and I go, hey, dad, can we watch the show we were watching? I can't go, I got here first. What kind of example am I setting when I do that? Now, every once in a while, I say, no, daddy hasn't watched something in a while. He'd really like to watch this. And it's like, you know, big game. And, you know, okay, is there something? Here's $5. <laughs> Everything's fine after that. I'm being generous. You get the idea. I'm not saying that everything should be unfair and the unjust perpetrator should always get away with it. That's not my point. But I think it's important we instruct our kids to not say things like mine or I had it first. Or really, it should be, you know, how can I be a blessing? How can I be a help? How can I be a servant? How can I think about others before myself? And that's the point. Verse 4 says, you also need to help when you see your brother in trouble. Not just when he's not there, but when you see him there. Verse 4, you should not see your brother's donkey or his ox. So these are obviously beasts of burden. They're carrying or pulling something. If you see him fall down by the way and then hide yourself, pretend like you didn't see it, hide yourself from them, you shall surely help him to lift them up again. God says, don't pretend like you didn't see it. Go help them. Well, some of us are more predisposed towards compassion or being generous than maybe others are. I'm not predisposed that way. I'm definitely more predisposed towards justice. But my wife is incredibly generous and in always thinking about other people. She's always thinking of ways to help people. But even 
even people who are good at that or have, have a gift from God to be more generous like that, we all struggle with selfishness to some degree. What others value isn't near as important to me as what I value. And so Israel was supposed to be different than that. That's our natural bent, our natural sinful bent. Israel was to be different than that. They were to put others before themselves. Now, doesn't the New Testament echo that principle? It sure does. Look at Philippians chapter 2. So even though, you know, this, this is a civil law to govern Israeli society, we have a similar principle in the New Testament. In Philippians 2, verses 1 through 4, it says, therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, is there any encouragement in Christ? Of course there is. If any comfort of love, is there any comfort of love in Christ? Of course there is. If any fellowship of the Spirit, of course there is. If any bowels and mercies, oh, God has poured out, you know, just all of his love and mercy upon us. He says, if that's all true, which it is, then fulfill, you guys need to fulfill my joy. And what would bring Paul joy? That you be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. And let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but, here it is, in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. And look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. And just to make sure we understand exactly what he means, he says Jesus is our example in this. He says, verse 5, let this mind, this mindset, be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on and talks about the incarnation. God who came down and left his throne above to come into our world to die for us. Jesus is our example of putting others before himself. Do we do that? Do we put others before ourselves? We need to be a good neighbor. Now next, not only do they need to swim upstream by being a good neighbor, but they need to be different than the rest of the world in a bunch of other areas. And the first area they need to be different is in understanding gender. In verse 5 he says, the woman shall not wear that which pertains unto a man, neither shall a man put on a woman's garment. For all that do so are abomination unto the Lord your God. The phrase that which pertains unto a man just doesn't mean man's clothing, okay? So it means you know, the trappings of a man. It could would mean carrying weapons or tools that were designed for the work that men did. In other words, it would be a woman putting on the outward appearance of a man. She wants people to think she's a man. For the guy, it says also, neither shall a man put on a woman's garment. And that would be clothing only because that's the only way a woman would identify herself back then. It's through her clothing. And so the idea is you are a man who wants people to think that you are a woman. Can I say very clearly, this does not mean a woman can't wear jeans, all right? This scripture was used for eons of why a woman could never wear jeans. And that is not what this is saying here. This has nothing to do with play acting in a theater. If a guy is playing a girl's part, whatever, that's not what this is talking about here, okay? This is a reference to someone who has rejected their God-given gender by appearing in public and wanting to be seen as the different gender. That is not okay. They were to be different and not do that. Now, you might be saying, okay, wait a second, Will. You've, you've been telling us this whole time. These are civil laws, and therefore, we don't look here to understand God's moral standard. These only apply to the governing of the nation of Israel. You are correct. And if we didn't find anything else in Scripture that said such behavior was wrong, then that's where this law might stay. But we do. <laughs> the rest of Scripture teaches and celebrates gender differences. It's funny because today, even in the church, it seems like we've got to kind of smooth all this stuff over. We don't want to be gender, you know, insensitive. And so we change things now. It's so funny. There's this argument now for, uh, I mean, the one word was around for a long time, but the new one, theologians come up with weird words. Complementarian is the new word. Like we would be considered complementarian. 
Egalitarian is the word that's been around for a long time. The idea that men and women, you know, are the same, should have the same positions, all that kind of stuff. You know, we would be described as complementarian, that we believe that women and men have different roles. They're created differently and have different roles as such. Again, people create words to try to be less offensive. It's really simple. You're either a girl or a guy. And if God made you a girl, then you need to be a girl. If God made you a guy, you need to be a guy. It's not complicated, okay? And there are roles and responsibilities that God gives to each gender. Now, I didn't make that up. I didn't set that that way. But I'm not going to apologize for it. For the God who made me, who knows all the intricacies of creation that we're still figuring out and change every five or ten years as we figure out more, I'm going to trust that he knows what he's talking about rather than step in here and say, I know God's been around forever and he's perfect and knows everything, but I've figured something out he didn't know. I'm not going to do that. The rest of scripture teaches and celebrates gender differences and it prohibits sexually deviant behavior. The rest of scripture does, including men trying to be women and women trying to be men. Now, what's interesting is the ancient world pretty much rejected transvestism, the idea of dressing like a woman if you were a man. They, they really didn't get into that. They got into all the other sexually deviant behavior, but not that. But what's interesting is the Roman world did embrace that. And so we find, as Paul writes to the Romans, he addresses this very clearly, the idea of gender differences and understanding that and walking in that. In Romans chapter 1, verses 24 through 27, Paul, as he's explaining the depravity of man and how we reject what God has revealed, he gets now to what happens to us when we reject what God revealed, where that takes us and how we continue to reject even more obvious things. He says, because they got involved in idolatry and refused to acknowledge God as God and glorify God as God. Verse 24 says, wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. I realize that every person is a beautiful, wonderful person created by God. But there is something that should freak you out when you see a woman dressed as a man. And if it does not, I would say there's something wrong with your conscience. Because there is an abuse that's being done to one's own body when someone does that. And it is a dishonoring thing between people when someone does that. I remember I was walking through a department store where we were heading to a restaurant in a mall with a buddy of mine, and he has a little boy with him. We were walking through the department store, and we came by the perfume section, and there was a man dressed up like a woman there. And the child, this is a young child, he's doing the double and triple take, like, what is that, Dad? Daddy was really good. He handled it. He goes, that is a man, son. It's a man dressed like a woman, and that's wrong. And then we just kept walking. But nobody had to tell the little child that there's something wrong with that, okay? There's something up with that. That freaked them out, and it should, because something like that is scary. It's deviant. It's dishonoring to my own body, let alone how it dishonors the bond that we have with our fellow man. It says, who have changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature themselves more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this cause, God gave them up unto vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise, also the men leaving the natural use of a woman, they burned in their lust toward one another, men with men working that which is unseemly and receiving in themselves that recompense, that penalty of their error, which was due. God, it's an abomination, it says to Kim. It is something that he hates. It's something that nauseates him. It's so different and so twisted from how he designed us to be. If you struggle with your God-given gender here tonight, I'm not trying to beat you up. Or I'm not t- trying to tell you you're a disgusting person. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that you need to repent. And, and the first thing you need to repent of is not start thinking you're a man if you're a man. The first thing you need to repent of is your pride, that you would have a better idea of what's best for you than God would. 
We say, yeah, but I, I don't get with the men, or I, don't, I seem to have more in common with the gals, even though I'm a guy. That's fine. I, I get that. That may be your struggle. But in your pride, if you say, well, then I can't be what God made me to be. He doesn't know well. He should have made me a woman. If I'm a woman, he should have made me a man. The minute you begin to do that, you exalt yourself up above God. And so the first problem is pride. Only when you've dealt with that can the Lord renew your mind regarding proper views on sexuality and gender. Verse 6 is quite the change in topic. Moses becomes an animal rights activist next. Verse 6. And if a bird's nest chanced to be before you in the way, on the road, or in any tree, or on the ground, whether they be young ones, in other words, newly hatched chicks, or eggs, so unhatched chicks, and then the dam, the mother, is sitting upon the young or upon the eggs, you shall not take the dam with the young, but you shall in any wise let the dam go and take the young to you, that it may be well with you and that you may prolong your days. So God is apparently very much a bird lover. God loves all animals. Psalm 36.6 states that God preserves both man and beast. Matthew 10.29 says that not a single bird dies without God being there to comfort it. God prohibits cruel or violent behavior towards animals, and that should be something no Christian takes part in. But the idea here is to take the mother means you leave the chicks to die and they have no use then. Like they can't reproduce, they can't be used for food, they just die. And so you could take the eggs or you could take the young for food, but if you did that, you need to let the mother go free so she could have more chicks later on. In other words, preserve the species. And we know that preserving every species was important to God because of all the animals that were placed on the ark. No exceptions were made. We know that every one of those creatures are important to God. Now what's interesting is our modern day hunting laws exist for the same purpose, to preserve species. And we have actually found this prohibition in other places in Scripture. When he says, when you go to get the baby, you know, lamb, he says, don't cook mom too. You got to let mom live. And the idea is, again, for the preservation of the species, because God knew what would be healthiest for our environment. If we end up wiping out one type of animal, it ends up messing up the whole food chain, and, and then all sorts of things happen. And we've learned that the hard way in our own culture. Sometimes I'm happy when they do construction, because you think, oh, cool, they're going to make things a little bit easier for us. And then other times you think, can they at least leave a few trees up? Like to be able to breathe some fresh air. There's definitely a balance to be struck between a building and and respecting God's creation. Now we get to verse 8 and referencing building, we find some Israeli building codes here. Now when you build a new house, and again, this is, you're supposed to be different than other nations. The other nations wouldn't care about God's creation. Israel was to preserve it. But here it also says they were to care in regards to their own personal property about others, to consider others with their own personal property. He says, when you build a new house, then you shall make a battlement for your roof, that you bring not blood upon your house if any man fall from there. Now battlement just means a railing or a low wall on your roof. You say, why would they need to do that? Well, the Israeli roof, because it was so hot over there, the Israeli roof almost turned like a porch. And because houses tend to be packed together, especially in cities, the roof was a place people hung out. Preachers say, what was David doing on his roof looking down in people's showers? Well, everybody was up on the roof. That's just what they did during that time. You know, in the cool of the day, they'd come up and get some fresh air. It was almost like a patio, you know, or a porch for them. And it still is today. You'll still frequently see Israelis up on their roofs because that's just how they build. So when you do that, he says, make sure you put a railing or a low wall up on your roof so that nobody falls off and dies and then you become guilty of manslaughter by neglect. And we have lots of building codes in our culture. I think most of them exist for political reasons and for taxation purposes. They don't call it that, but that's kind of what it is. But of course, the original intent was for safety. Again, though, the idea is even though it's your own home, you need to be thinking about others, even at your own expense. It would cost more to build this railing, but you needed to be thinking about others. Well, that's not the way the world works. The world says, look out for number one. You know, I have to take care of me. There's this new, it's not very new, it's just rehashed. But this thing out there about self-love, 
please stay away from books like that. You know, there's one out there that's very popular right now. Be very careful. There is one thing that God tells us to do with self, and he says, deny it. You don't need to love yourself. You need to deny yourself, okay? I need to love me. All of my problems exist because, not because I need to love me more, it's because I already love me too much. My, my marriage problems, if we ever have them, they exist because I'm loving me too much. My parenting problems exist because I love me too much. If I run into a problem with you, it's because I love me too much. Never is it because I just need to love myself more. Be wary of that. Be wary of anything that would tell you to love yourself more. The Lord tells us to love him and to love others, not ourselves. He tells us to deny ourselves. Now, we move here from building codes into agricultural codes. He says in verse 9, Should not sow your vineyards with, don't plant your vineyards with different kinds of seeds, lest the fruit of your seed which you have sown and the fruit of your vineyard be defiled. And then he says here again, similar type agricultural law. He says, You shall also not plow with an ox and a donkey together. Now, the first one here regarding vineyards, the word there defiled is an, an interesting word. It doesn't mean to defile. It actually means to dedicate something to God. So he says, don't plant different kind of seeds in the same vineyard, lest you end up dedicating it to God. Why would he say that? Well, this is an interesting verse. Bible critics like to bring it up all the time and say, there's no agricultural reason to do something like this. Or they might highlight how you Christians, you know, you like to talk about how homosexuality is in the Old Testament, but do you plant your fields like this? And they'll say, we ignore one part of scripture, but uphold another one. As if mankind not obeying one of God's laws invalidates the rest of them. But anyway, you know, what is God talking about here? What's the purpose of this law? See, what those critics ignore is that this law wasn't for agricultural purposes. It was for religious purposes. The Zabians were one of the oldest established religions, false religions known to man. Abraham came from that region. They were fire worshipers. He came from that area, and they worshiped the sun, the moon, the stars. They even went so far as to say that the reason God flooded the world was because Noah's sons refused to worship the sun, moon, and the stars. And so he blocked them out with a storm and flooded the earth for 40 days. And only after 40 days when they finally repented and said, we're sorry, God, we'll worship the sun, moon, and the stars. Then he stopped the rain, let the water go down and let him out. That's what they taught. The modern theologians aren't the first ones to twist scripture been going on for a long time. So the Zabians, they were very superstitious with agriculture too. They had all sorts of rituals to guarantee rain or to make sure you got good crops. And one of them was mixing different kinds of seed in a field. And they called it, guess what? Dedicating your field to the gods. So what God is saying here to the Israelis, he's saying, don't mix different kinds of, of seeds in the same field because you think it gives you power or it secures my blessing or will make me make it rain. He goes, you don't have to do that. Just trust me. You don't need to dedicate your field to me like the Zabians do to their gods. Just trust me. Just dedicate it to me just by saying, Lord, it's yours and I will be good to you. God didn't want Israel resorting to these pagan practices to guarantee his blessing. He wanted them to simply trust him. And that's how the ancient rabbis understood this passage, which again just shows you that at least what I've found is almost anyone that's critiqued the Bible has done very little study on their own part. Find many of the arguments to be empty and just really unresearched. I've yet to find somebody who would actually give me a good discussion on contradictions in the Bible. I'm still waiting. So if you're one, give me a try. Now, what about the donkey and, and the ox together? Well, the donkey is much shorter, has smaller steps, so the plowing is unequal, it's irregular. And in addition to that, donkey, the food it eats gives it very bad breath. They still actually do this. The very poorest of the farmers in Israel do this today, where they put an ox with a donkey. And you can see the ox is doing this the whole time. 
I mean, he just hates the, the breath is, is just nasty to him. And so what happens is it can injure itself. If it, it only pulls with one shoulder, often causing injury. So it's unkind to the animals. It's unproductive for your field. And in addition to that, and probably the main reason, is that if an Israeli did that, he'd be yoking a clean animal that could be sacrificed to the Lord next to an unclean animal, which would therefore make the clean animal unclean. So ritually, they were not allowed to do that. They were never to do that. So that's probably the main reason. You know, what's interesting is that we have a similar principle in the New Testament. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and you'll see where this comes from. Well, we just read where it comes from, but now you'll put the two together. You've heard this phrase probably many times if you've been a Christian for any length. I think I said chapter 7. I actually mean chapter 6, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And we begin in verse 14. Paul says, do not be what? Unequally yoked together with not a donkey or an ox, but with unbelievers. And he explains why. For what fellowship, in other words, what partnership, what togetherness, we're not going to be plowing in the same field, we're not moving in the same direction. What fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion has light with darkness? What concord has Christ with Belial or Satan? Or what part has he that believes with an infidel, an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord, and touch not the what? Unclean thing. And I will receive you and will be a father unto you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. So we are not to be unequally yoked, you know, with an unbeliever. I think the Bible prohibits us from going into business partnerships with unbelievers. Um, It certainly prohibits going into marriage with an unbeliever. Paul makes it very clear that if you're married to an unbeliever, he says, and they're willing to stay with you, then you stay. But if you're single, don't marry an unbeliever. You need to marry someone who knows the Lord. So, I mean, if you are single right now, your dating options are definitely clear. Believer only, right? No unbelievers. So we don't want to be unequally yoked. Their heartache comes from that pain, injury, just like it would for the ox and for the donkey to be yoked together. So I would ask you, you know, are you unequally yoked right now? Or are you considering going into a situation that makes you unequally yoked? I would say get out of it. If you're married, again, we already covered that. You need to stay with that. But if you're dating or if you're thinking of contemplating a business partnership with an unbeliever, I would say don't do that. I think you'll only end up in trouble. As people that put our faith and our hope in God's Word, we must lay our pride aside and accept the boundaries that He has clearly laid out. We are not God, we are not like Him, and He is not like us. To even come before Him, we must enter on His terms. That means agreeing that sin is sin, wrong is wrong, regardless of the time, place, emotion, or any other excuse we may use to justify our actions. He knows what's best for us. All we must do is trust and obey. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.